it was like for us like a kind of love letter to the big screen experience, the theatrical experience. The book was calling for that, the, the yeah. landscape, and that it was just an act of pleasure, I would say. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Denis Villeneuve's new sci-fi drama, Dune. An adaptation of Frank Herbert's groundbreaking science fiction novel, the film follows the son of a noble family who is entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and vital element in the galaxy. In addition to Dune, Mr. Villeneuve's filmography includes the feature films Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, Enemy, Prisoners, and Maelstrom. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for his 2016 feature, Arrival. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Villeneuve spoke with fellow director Christopher Nolan about filming Dune. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. First of all, thank you. You're very generous. I would like to thank you first for coming to see the movie in a theater. That means the world to me. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you, Chris, for being here tonight. That means the world to me, of course. No, thank you for having me. And uh, not just any theater, this DGA theater that's been renovated. It's my first time back in it since it's been renovated. It looks absolutely beautiful. And thank you for giving the speakers a decent workout. That was (laughs) fabulous. (laughs) So my first inkling of anything to do with this project is is you and I had dinner some years ago with a couple of producers and somebody around the table, it was just back in, it was after arrival. And somebody said, oh, Legendary just acquired the rights to to Dune. And you immediately said, uh, somebody said, well, what's going on with that? And you said, well, nobody's doing anything with that. And two things were immediately apparent to me. One is you should never be a professional poker player. <laughs> and the other is soon enough, I'm going to be sitting there watching your version of this incredible book. And now that I have a couple of times now, uh, I want to know how long was this long held dream? When did it start? Um, you mean, I apologize, Chris. You said how long, when did you first want to do Oh, this book. How long has this been in your head? Oh, oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> I read it when I was 13 years old. So it's like, uh, and of course, when I, I, when I read the book, I, uh, it was at the precise moments where I was trying to get interested of what uh, was happening behind the camera and uh, discovering the job of a director. And I remember the, at the time, uh, my best friend and I were writing screenplays, doing storyboards, and we were dreaming at the time. Of course, it was fantasy, but we, we, we were storyboarding Dune. I mean, we were trying to, was dreaming at the time, but it was just like out of reach, of course. Then when I came here working in LA, when people were asking me, what would be your ultimate project? And I would, uh, it, the book always came back in my mind. It's a book that stayed with me for 40 years and... I kept getting back to it. There's, 
it still brings a deep joy and a deep inspiration to me. So it's like it's a, uh, but I would say I considered uh, working on on uh, on the book since maybe seven or eight years that I started to say, okay, where are the rights? How come after the Lynch movie, which with all respect to the master, I'd loved some aspect of it, but there's a, when he deviated from the book. Uh, so I, I kept for years wondering who will do another adaptation. I was waiting for an adaptation. I was waiting, waiting, and then I get tired. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, with respect to the Lynch adaptation, what, what I feel when I see the film is this is a very, very different film. Uh, and it does seem closer to the book. Uh, not that I'm an expert on the book. I read it when I was about, about the same age as, as you did. Um, and yet there's some kind of lingering respect for some of the Lynch film, I think, in there, even as it's a completely new version of it. And, and I think in some ways what they share is, is a complete commitment to realizing an absolutely detailed world. And how did you start to plan the level of detail that, that's in this film. That's the, the thing is that I said to the crew, uh, to all crew, that it, we were not there to express ourselves, but to try to bring Herbert, the words of Herbert, to the screen. I really, we, the book was the Bible. We, we went back to the, the, uh, the book all the time. At the beginning, at the very beginning of the process, I uh, sat alone with my storyboard artist and I spent weeks drawing alone with him. A bit like I did when I was 13 years old with my friend. It was exactly the same. So trying to, like an archaeologist, trying to go back to the the old images that I had. when I, I was really trying to go back to the images I had when I read the book at fr- the first time, when the, the, those uncorrupt images, you know, the images and the emotions that I had when I read the book and... and um, Focusing on nature and uh, and uh, the place of the human of humans in the ecosystems and so um, it and I said to the crew that the, the, I, I did that work with my storyboard artist and then I brought one designer and uh, it was forbidden to talk about to take any reference from, reference from the internet I, I wanted it to come from dreams or trying to meditate and trying to find images to, I just you know. There's an elephant in the room, and it's Star Wars. It's like it's, 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 to design a movie like that, that uh, Star Wars has being inspired deeply by by Dune. They are trying to f- just try to f- bring something fresh, or that. so the idea was to focus on dreams and book the book, the book, the book. I did that that work uh, happen in parallel with the screenwriting process. What was the? How did the script? Because obviously adapting such a complicated book, such a long book, talk us through a little bit of how that process interacted with, with the design ideas and the visualizations. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was like, it was a parallel process because at the beginning uh, uh, I asked Eric Roth to, uh, to put his hands on the keyboard at the beginning and, and, as, and as he was doing so I was uh, uh, starting to, to, to draw with uh, my friends, trying to bring images to... Uh, so it was like a parallel work. So the so thing is that I had a lot of time. I have say like a year of design and design and design uh, in a very intimate way. But it was that uh, just to find the main alphabet, the, the language, the visual language of the movie. Once I found that, I brought my production designer on board. And then he explored, he explored that world and they defined all the cultures. And, uh, and at what point was 
your decision to do just the first half of the book? I mean, it's almost exactly the first half of the book. I think it's slightly into book two. Uh, it's uh, right at the beginning. It's, it's something that I, I uh, proposed uh, to the studio right away because I, I was feeling that the, to try to uh, put that story into uh, one movie will it, it will be damageable. Uh, it will be a mistake. Uh, and they, they didn't. It was not a discussion. They agreed spontaneously. They said uh, the, the only thing where we started to talk was that I wanted to make both movies in the same time. Mm. And that felt too expensive. <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, I should say that, you know, you're always as good as your last movie and you, you bring the repeat. What, and, and I think that Blade Runner wasn't a major box office success so I would they, I, <laughs> I think that they were a bit um, cold at the idea of uh, investing for two movies right away I think that's the, the truth that's I, what I understood I, I think that was <laughs> I think that was negotiating tactics on the studio's part because I think Playground was a very successful film and an incredible piece of work so I think they were pulling your leg a little with that but I have to say, having visited the set of, of a couple of filmmakers who shall remain nameless who were doing two films back to back, I've never seen people so exhausted. It's such difficulty. I, I vowed to myself I would never do two films back to back. But it's I will have died. I'm so happy we didn't because yeah. I, will, uh, sorry, I will not add uh, the stamina to do that. Frankly, the truth, uh, yeah. uh, I'm grateful that it happened this way because uh, it would have... Uh, Shooting in the desert and the elements, it was like, it was uh, very inspiring and exhilarating, but I will have, uh, it, uh, I were exhausted at the end of this shoot. Yeah, exhausted. How many days did you shoot? Um, it's a tricky question because I'm not sure about the answer. I think that I woke up uh, 120 times <laughs> to, to take a camera in my hands, but the actual real number for the main crew is 105 or something like that. Uh. But I had... For the first time of my life, I had decided to work with more than one unit mm. because otherwise I will not be here tonight. It was it was like too much work to do and too much little time. So I had to, for the first time, learn how to direct multiple units. And that was like, I, it's, it's not the best way to work. I, I, I love to work with one camera, one tripod, that's it. But, but not... I, had, I didn't have the choice I had to do it this way. And where did you shoot? What were your what were your choices in terms of where you would build, where you would find locations? How did you go about that that process? Man, we chose the best for because they had the necessary stage the the, the stage space that we had what needed. I had shot Blade Runner there. They had they have fantastic uh, stages, big enough for the set that we were designing. And then uh, we shot in Jordan and in Abu Dhabi because in Jordan you have like uh, all the rocky, rocky formation that I was looking for, but not the sea of sand. Mm. And that's the thing that I said to the studio that well, I, it was not a negotiation. I I didn't want to to to, to shoot the the desert on a back lot or, or say mm. I I didn't want to use green screens. I wanted to go in the real environment to be as close as possible to nature as Frank Herbert did when he wrote the book. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the, the most spectacular locations that, that you've used in the film uh, is Wadi Rum in, in Jordan, which um, some of you may know from Lawrence of Arabia. 
And a lot of films have shot uh, in Wadi Rum since Lawrence. Um, but I, for my money, this is, this is the first time I've seen it used in as expressive a way. Uh, the sense of place, I think, is extraordinary. And how was it shooting in Wadi Rum? Because the thing about Wadi Rum is it's this vast valley. I mean, just on a, on a scale. I just can't think of anything else in the, in the world on, on that scale. So how were you getting to where you were shooting? Were you camping out there? Were you staying in a nearby town? Uh, there's a town called uh, Aqaba that, uh, mm. uh, that is part of the Lawrence of Arabia story. Aqaba uh, by land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Frank Herbert, when he wrote Dune, was in, inspired by D. Lawrence's uh, uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Mm. See? And, and then... Uh, um, I mean, it was like a natural, it was something natural to go back because there's so many links between the, the Lawrence of Arabia and, and the Dune. They decided to have a, a man that decided to, because he falls in love with a new culture and one, he feels home with this new, in this new culture and wants to help the culture and goes to war with the culture and then realize that he himself is an instrument of colonialism. So it's very close to... Uh, and uh, so it was like it made sense to go to uh, to Wadi Rum. Now I, I uh, it's it was my third time that I was shooting in Jordan. I had been there first alone with a video camera, making a documentary about uh, Petra when I was a, a film student. I came back uh, uh, ten years later with a small film crew to shoot a feature film there, and I remember scouting all around Jordan, saying to myself, "If ever." I, I do a movie like Dune. That's where I come back because the rock formation there are so poetic, so powerful, so unique. Then it becomes, as you rightly said, uh, more exploited in in, uh, in movies. But uh, it just feels so close to the, the description of the book. Mm-hmm. There's a place that the final scene where uh, Paul and Jessica meets finally the Fremen. It's exactly the description. It's like that kind of horseshoe. Uh, uh, dead end in the rocks. With it, it was like uh, very mesmerizing for me to to find those uh, those locations that fit felt so so close to the spirit of the book. Yeah, that's well, fabulous. Um, what were your choices in terms of what to build? Because obviously, there's a huge visual effects component. Um, there's all kinds of enhancements to the environment. I think beautifully beautifully blended. Um, what's your process of of deciding what to build? Uh, and what were the biggest sets that you built? The the biggest one was probably um, there two. There's like the palace, the the residency. The, we built like a massive corridor, so that maybe thirty feet high, and it's, it was like uh, we took the old stage. Uh, that uh, I remember the seeing the mouth of the producer when he saw the, <laughs> the, the size of the sets. But we did also the, the thing is that I did one compromise. Because uh, of a uh, budget, I, uh, I wanted to shoot the landing on the Atreides R landing. <clears throat> I wanted to shoot that in the desert in Jordan, but it was too uh, too com- too expensive. Mm. So we built a tarmac in in Hungary, like the size of two football field, and uh, surrounded by uh, sunscreens around. And uh, that was probably the biggest. It sounds, it sounds silly to say, but that tarmac was huge. I mean, that yeah, was like yeah. that uh, to, to create a scale, to have the distance with the the extra, to uh, to have the proper scope. Um, How did you get the light? The sense of heat and, and sun there is amazing in that scene. 
that's the thing. We were very lucky with climate in Jordan. We had those beautiful white skies, blow up skies with a lot of wind and strong winds and, and a little sandstorm. We were, I was like, the gods of cinema were with us. <laughs> and I was so happy. And we, we were able to shoot, come back on schedule. We were heroes. Then we got punished because we landed in, Jar in, in Hungary and then the, the, it started to rain nonstop. So it was like uh, something you cannot have on Arrakis. So yes, that was like uh, the plan didn't work that well, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but but um, the, the good thing is that uh, we shot uh, uh, some interiors in, in Budapest. We went to Jordan for, for uh, several weeks. When we came back, the crew knew exactly the amount of sense required <laughs> on costume and on the, the dust. And so everybody came back with that, that experience of the desert. So it uh, allowed us to recreate with a, uh, special effects, the, the dust and, uh, and waiting for the right skies. Yeah. Mm. So even the, the light, you know, as the doors open and that, that bright light, is that just overexposing the... Yes, 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 yes. yes, 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 yes. It's phenomenal. And it looks a lot of dust. I mean, yeah. a lot of dust and a lot of uh, uh, propellers. Uh, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of actors that didn't like dust. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. Well, talk to us about the actors. Talk to us about casting. Um, I have a, a quick question about it because it's an extraordinary cast uh, with so many uh, familiar faces doing something new and, and, and different. Uh, did that create scheduling problems with the, the actors there the whole time? I mean, obviously, Timothy Chalamet, who's phenomenal in the movie. I mean, he would have had to be there the whole time. But was it, was it the usual sort of scheduling puzzle that had to be put together? Uh, I think that as memory is good, it was... It, as usual, but it was not uh, nothing special there. I would say um, they, because there was like blocks. You know, you had the, the Jordan blocks where you had uh, Zendaya and, and uh, Javi Bardem, and uh, but uh, I think the main problem was Oscar Isaac that did, was not able to come to uh, Jordan with us. So I had to sh find st the usual strategies to f shoot him. Mm. In, in Hungary. Yeah, I think that the only problem we had with the Oscar schedule, but uh, for the rest of the people, I think it, it went quite well. It was a long shoot, so it allowed to, yeah. And how did you uh, choose your cast? How did you go about taking what had been in your head for so long, you know, Frank Herbert's words on the page? You must have had very fixed ideas about those characters. I mean, even more than we usually have from screenplay. You must have had really yeah, specific things yeah yeah it's, it's, the, the biggest challenge for me in this movie was to try to be able to please the teenager i was <laughs> because i was totalitarian i was an animal i was really uh, 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 pretentious ambitious uh, uh, when i was a teenager uh, I, wa I was dreaming big and uh, to try to um you understand what i mean to to, it's such an old dream. I remember talking with Hans uh, Zimmer, uh, talking about, uh, at the beginning, and he said, is it dangerous that we try to bring to life a, such an old dream? Are we face, uh, will we face necessary disappointment? I'm not, it's like disappoint ourselves. Or, that, that was a big challenge is to try to not disappoint ourselves. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm a bit, yeah. So, about casting it uh, uh, the same. I mean, Timothy and Paul's himself. Uh, you work with Timothy. You're, 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 
did when he, he was, was a wee lad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, I think, it, yeah, Interstellar was the first film where he got to go on his own without his parents and and be you know a young man. And uh, he was just just absolutely lovely. And I assume he still is. But uh, yes, he he's is. extraordinary in the film. He was my only choice, honestly. For for uh, I think he has. A, a level of maturity and uh, again he looked very young on camera mm. and that contrast uh, was perfect for Paul Atreides also his features are very aristocratic and he has uh, as you know the charisma of a rock star I mean Timothy is incredible the camera loves him so much uh, because I needed that the, the audience uh, the audience to believe that if ever and I'm praying again the gods if ever we do part two we will know, we need to believe that this guy will a fool uh, old planet and make them believe it's a messianic figure and uh, and bring them them into a war so he, he needs uh, that charisma well uh, he's only 15 in the book i i seem to remember yeah, uh, and he bridges that 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 age very very nicely it's kind of unthinkable without without tim i think um and the rest of the cast as it fleshes out it's one of these movies where the scale of the film is greatly enhanced by the scale of the cast by these new faces coming in and uh, yeah, whether it's Jason Momoa or mm. uh, Josh Brolin or whatever and uh, it's a great ensemble but the thing I thank you the thing is um, there's like I had a list and that list is pretty close to to what you have on screen right now they, there was some of course people of that problem with the schedule so ads there's are there are some surprises for me some people that came on on board that uh, I wasn't thinking of, but frankly, no matter what people think about the film, I think that the description, when you read the book and you read the description of the character, we are pretty close to, to Frank Herbert's spirit. I think that I'm, uh, it's a thing that I'm proud of is the casting of this movie. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us about, uh, Baron Harkonnen, tell us about Stellan Skarsgård. I mean, it's an extraordinary look i mean what did that involve technically i mean we see yeah the, the um, I, w- I wanted to to do as much as possible uh, on camera and uh, and when i, I asked uh, stellan uh, who was my first choice i asked uh, i would love you to to play the baron and he said how, how do you want to do it and i said practically i want to to create a prosthetic suit and then he said okay i'm in because he will have refused if I had done it virtually. He wanted to, right. he loved the idea, he loved the idea to be able to portray himself, to be, uh, he didn't want to do something, me neither. So we agree on that. And then that's why every morning, the eight hours of makeup, he never complained. <laughs> oh my God. No, no, eight it was, hours. Yeah, it was eight hours to get in that suit. And uh, and uh, and the, the challenge was the, the shape. Uh, I didn't want the, the Baron to look uh, like a fat baby or, or uh, something uh, or uh, uh, some uh, a grotesque character. I wanted him to be frightening, to be muscular. To so with my storyboard artist, we drew draw hundreds of shapes to to come with that shape that will. Uh, uh, and when it came for a costume, my favorite costume of the Baron it was when he was naked. I, I thought it was so powerful. The, so that's why the first scene, I, I rewrote the first scene to, to start with that steam bath because I wanted to see him at, le, at, at, la, at least one time naked. I thought <laughs> it was so beautiful. 
and it, was there a conversation about Apocalypse Now at all? I mean, there's such a wonderful <laughs> movement of the hand. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, Marlon Brando was definitely an inspiration for the Byron to do, and, and uh, yep. I, uh, when, when, when we, we um, Greg Fraser and I were brainstorming about the film, we were so, it was like for us, like a kind of love letter to the big screen experience, the theatrical experience. It was, the book was calling for that, the, the landscape. And that it's a story of a boy that will slowly remove the burden of all the his heritage and find comfort and, and make peace with a part of his identity as much as much uh, as he's going deeper and deeper into a landscape a bit like uh, in some ways and the character in apocalypse now there was something like uh, this idea of getting inside the landscape and it, it becomes a more and more an introspective introspective journey mm. there's i don't do that usually but there's a lot of, uh, of homage little Winks to movie I deeply love and, and our filmmaker I admire. So mm. there's tons of references. It was just an act of pleasure, I would say. <laughs> well, I, geography is enormously important to the, to the film. Where did you shoot the Caladan scenes? In in Norway. Uh, mm. Yeah, in the, in the, on the west coast of Norway, where we found those cliffs that uh, felt again like the description of the book some uh, there's some cliffs that were shot in the, the big ones that are we see when paul walks and the spaceships are rising from the waters in norway the cemetery scene was shot in uh, in uh, budapest on cliffs mm. and then we added uh, the ocean uh, in the background mm. um, again oscar is uh, isaac yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> well it's worth it so. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's fantastic the way you create the, the different worlds and allow us to to really really get lost in it. Uh, obviously, a huge component of that is visual effects, um, but I think it's one of the most seamless marriages of, of live action photography and computer generated visual effects that, that I've seen. I think it's it's very very uh, compelling at, at every turn. How did you approach visual effects for the film? Uh, the thing is, uh, um, as uh, um, you do yourself, I think you shoot as much as possible on relocation and you embrace, you try to bring as, there's, I tried to avoid, there are some shots in the truth that are pure CGI, but um, I tried to avoid those uh, uh, as much as possible, the, the old movies. I mean, to shoot with, with real environments, with real plates as much as possible, using helicopters as proxies, mm -hmm. uh, to, the tricks that, uh, and it's all about light at the end of the day and, and add a master class into uh, how to lit a shot with uh, doing Blade Runner with uh, Roger Dickens because Roger supervised with me all the VFX. So I spent a year listening to him on every shot. I mean, for me, I learned so much how to work on, on VFX with Roger. It is, uh, so that helped me tremendously to direct the team here. Mm. And uh, working with my old friend Hans Zimmer on the music, uh, the music is incredible in the film. The range of sounds, and, and when you see the film for a second or a third time, the structure of how those sounds are used and how the different themes are assigned in such a complicated piece of work, 
uh, is very, very impressive. The, the freshness of the sounds are great. How did, I mean, Hans came on board very early, I, I understand. And um, describe a little of that chaos. <laughs> <laughs> chaos. You know what you're talking about. No, but, uh, I know uh, wherever I speak. <laughs> no, Hans, Hans, I think scoring that mo- Hans had never, if I may, uh, it's a story he tells a lot in public right now that he, he had never even seen the previous incarnation of, of, of the, 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 because he wanted to stay a virgin. He, he wanted to, he said, one day, maybe I will have the chance to score uh, an adaptation. And he wanted to, so he never heard anything uh, that has been done before for other versions. And he became obsessed with the idea to create sounds that will come from uh, another world. He created instruments, spent months, if not uh, a year, creating sounds and, and r- really uh, uh, creating instruments that will uh, use wind. And uh, he was obsessed with the idea of, uh, uh, we both agreed that a score should enhance the idea of the feminine, the feminine power of the book, the, 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 the female qualities of the book. It's also with, he brought this idea of uh, the female voice and try to get out of this comfort zone. He was obsessed to trying to find new ways of using rhythms and, and using new instruments. And, uh, it and became voices like, as well, a lot of voices. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. And he became, he was really like a mad scientist. I mean, he were, he, and I was waiting and I was waiting and I said, he said, it, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he came and, but when well, suddenly he, he wrote that beautiful suite for, uh, Paul and uh, that was so moving and um, then it, it it was an explosion of music that and I think I think he's still scarring the movie right now. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking. <laughs> I I still receive music from time to time because he wants to inspire me for the second one. But but uh, and um, the the main thing with the, the music is was the spirituality, the sacred quality of the music that it felt like uh, music to enhance the spirituality, the relationship with nature, uh, that felt spiritual. That's that, uh, uh, so he worked, uh, it was a very unique experience, uh, working with Hans, honestly, uh, yeah, it's, uh, for me, I mean, it's, uh, mm. yeah. well, and the, the attention that, that he always gives to the design, the sound design of the music and how that's going to interact with, with the sound effects. I think the mix is really extraordinary. Um, it was Doug Hempel and in, in Ron Bartlett. Yes, yeah. uh, they um, had done Blade Runner with them and had the best experience. And um, Hans wanted to flirt because of that idea of using new sound. He was flirting. He came very close to the border of sound design. He asked mm-hmm. the permission to the boys, uh, to Theo Green and Mark Mangini. He said, "Guys, I'm going to get very close." <laughs> <laughs> and, and but they worked together. I mean, it was really teamwork. They, there was no because we didn't want to. Uh, have a car crash into the mix room, the dub room, you know, so it, it, we, it, it, it's not something that was improvised. Uh, it, there was like a lot of back and forth between both teams yeah. and to make sure that, uh, to create that. And uh, it's, a, I love when you have that kind of feeling where you don't know if it's score or design that it yeah. becomes, that the line becomes blurred, becomes just like a, become very immersive and atmospheric. I deeply love that. It's by far my most musical movie. Huh? I don't use a lot of music in my, uh, I, the, this one is like, I think the, it's like a never ending score. I mean, it's a, it's a, but, uh, 
my, because I was feeling that it needed that kind of operatic feeling to, to bring the, and the music, um, the music was also used as a uh, counterpoints to sometimes give hints on the, um, inner strategies of the character, how the, their thought process, a bit like, a, because in the book you have access to the thoughts of the characters, but here we were trying with music to get a bit closer to the spirit of the book, I would say. And uh, just talk a little bit about editing. Were you editing with the music or were you uh, using temp score? What was your editing process? Uh, uh, I hate to use temp score. Mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, uh, first I try to cut the movie without any music. Mm -hmm. The truth is that to make a screening at one point for the studio, I had to use temp score because Hans was like still in his uh, lab, but uh, it was like temporary. I deeply hate temp scores. Yeah. And was it a difficult film to edit? I mean, in terms of getting all of this complexity, it feels like there must have been significant challenges in terms of clarity, particularly. Yeah. The thing is that uh, I will say that the most challenging thing was the opening of the film, how to introduce this world to an, uh, to an audience that maybe to people that didn't read, read the book yet. Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys. My English is going the, the, the trap right now. I think I'm, I'm a bit jet lag and I apologize for this. The, 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 the idea was to please the hardcore fans as I, I am and uh, as me and to make sure that people who never read the book will, will feel welcome. And that was the big challenge. And, and that uh, was a challenge in the screenwriting and in the, the challenge in the editing room as well. And um, things that uh, uh, we spent a lot of time to edit were the dream sequence mm. to give enough, not enough to just to make sure that it was, how can I say, it? I, I wanted the, the, the vision to be like confusing, like dreams, mm. but still clear enough to give hints to the audience so it's not frustrating. So it's that to find that balance was not easy. Well, I think uh, you and, and your entire team did an absolutely uh, incredible job of that. I think this film is going to introduce a whole new generation of, of fans to to Dune who haven't even read it and perhaps will go and read the book now. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary piece of work and I've had the luxury of seeing it a couple of times now and each time I watch it, I discover new things, new details uh, to the world uh, and I think the way in which it's made is absolutely for the big screen. It's a real pleasure, it's a real gift to uh, film fans everywhere. Uh, so thank you very much for that, Denis, and thank you everyone for coming. You're very generous, thank you my friend. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 